Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. The COVID-19 pandemic hasn't just been an unprecedented global health crisis. It also had profound implications for the world economy. Some new data from China that presents a troubling picture. It just shows you exactly Already by late March 2020, CNBC was reporting on China's economic downturn as a foretaste of what might be coming for the rest of the world. Welcome Leland Miller. So uh, what do you think? A drop of 11%. I guess it's not entirely surprising given how China really clamped down and shut the economy down in response to coronavirus. You should have been expecting first quarter weakness. I don't think people were expecting double digit weakness. And, you know, when we work through our numbers, uh, you know, we're, we're getting to a, to a level of weakness we just never seen before. We're talking every sector weaker, every region weaker, every headline metric weaker, and not just weaker, but in, but in contraction. So this is, this, is a, this is a new area. We've, uncharted waters. We've never seen anything like this before. The spread of the virus in 2020 shattered the complacency of the World Economic Forum at Davos as Liz Hoffman of the Wall Street Journal explained in the following report. You have CEOs from some of the biggest companies in the world, heads of state, president was there. I don't remember anyone taking coronavirus seriously. Everyone's always enthusiastic at Davos. No one makes friends there by predicting doom and gloom. This seems to be the decade of shared success. Together we can, together we will. But I was reticent to say anything because being a scientist, driven by facts and data. In the absence of facts and data, I didn't want to make any conjecture. So I remember in retrospect, uh, I probably made statements that were perhaps too neutral. I think all the right things are happening. I mean, you've seen uh, some of the actions the Chinese government has taken. I know critical disease control agencies around the world are getting really active. So we'll have to wait and see. There's a lot we don't know. I don't think I was prescient in saying the economic trajectory of the U.S. economy would continue in 2020. You know, people are relatively confident that global growth will sustain through 2020, the chance of an economic slowdown, barring some sort of an exogenous event. We had an exogenous event. I guess I was right about that. I remember watching CEO of Goldman Sachs on the DJ booth um, at a Salesforce party, just like 10 deep, shoulder to shoulder. It all feels like a totally different planet now. March started on a very high note and it ended with the economy just in complete tatters. In that 31 days where just everything changed. Our guest today is Rama Vasudevan. Rama teaches economics at Colorado State University and she's the author of Things Fall Apart, an account of the last global crisis. After more than a year of the COVID-19 pandemic, what would you say have been the main consequences, direct consequences for the world economy in terms of growth, employment and other basic metrics? And how would you compare it to the crash of 2008? The pandemic was, in a sense, a kind of a prism. It clarified uh, the brutal dilemmas posed by the logic of capitalism. So as businesses were forced to close to check the spread of contagion, it cut loose those whose lives and livelihoods depended on the cracking out of jobs by the capitalist economic engines. So the pandemic kind of revealed with devastating clarity how tenuous the access to even the most basic goods and services becomes when the access depends on precarious jobs. But what is key is that the pandemic and its implications are distinct and different from that of the global financial crisis. The collapse of the economic engines in the context of the pandemic was because of the shock of the COVID-19 outbreak. But during the 
financial crisis in 2008, it was the outcome and expression of the economic contradictions of capitalism itself. And these contradictions are visible in the economic tendencies of falling profitability, lagging demand, which disrupted accumulation. So one should bear this in mind when comparing the pandemic to the crash of 2008. But uh, to look at some actual numbers, now, um, world GDP contracted by about 3.3% during the pandemic. Compare this to the GFC, it fell by 1.7% in 2009. But it's also important to note that GDP growth fell from a higher level of um, around 4.3% in 2008, while in 2020, it fell from a lower rate of 23 so what this means is that the fault lines that had kind of led to the other financial crisis have continued to widen after the recovery. So the pandemic has actually struck a global economy that was already fragile. The pathogen kind of invaded a system which was already in the grip of a chronic pathology. Uh, looking at employment numbers, about in 2020, as a result of the pandemic and the shutdowns, 9% of global working hours were lost relative to the end of uh, 2019. Now, this is the equivalent of about 255 million full-time jobs. And this is because of unemployment, inactivity, and reduced hours. So we're collapsing all of that together. And this is from the ILO. Now, the fall in average working hours per week because of the pandemic was about 2.5 hours, 2.5 hours. And this is approximately four times greater than that during the global financial crisis in 2009. Then weekly, weekly hours declined by just 0.6 hours between 2008 and 9. These working hour losses are particularly high in Latin America and the Caribbean, Southern Europe, and Southern Asia. Employment losses are very high in the US. And the losses have been higher for women, about 5%, for younger workers, which is about 8.7%. Another important thing is that in contrast to crisis like the financial crisis of 2008, most of the global employment loss because of the pandemic was because of rising inactivity rather than unemployment. So this led to an additional 81 million people shifting to non-active status alongside actual global unemployment of 33 million. And these are people who are actively seeking jobs. Right. So the labor force participation number of people or the proportion of people who enter the labor market fell by 2.2 percent. It became less than 60 percent of the labor force because of the COVID crisis. The fall during uh, the financial crisis was about 0.2 percent. So again, one can see the difference. There's a sharper fall in not only is there a greater loss of reduced uh, working hours, there's also a greater fall in participation rates. And this is because the pandemic was not just a drop in investments leading to fall in jobs, but imposed this choice between life and livelihood. Because holding on to a livelihood for a large section of working people meant you put your life online. And, and that, I think, is one of the stark differences of the pandemic and why it kind of made the precarity of working lives so, so kind of, um, you know, evident. There's also a difference in the sense that, that there are massive job losses. 
in hard hit sectors for accommodation, food services, arts and culture, retail, construction. And there's job growth in higher skill sectors like information, communication, financial and insurance activities. So job destruction has disproportionately affected low paid, low skilled, informal jobs. And this is pointing to not just an uneven recovery, but growing a recovery which will lead to greater inequality. If we look at the share of the working class, working with, I mean, share wage income, without taking into account any income support measures which are launched by states. In 2020, it declined by 8.3%, the share of wages in total income. And this amounts to about $3.7 trillion. The greatest loss, about 12.3%, was experienced in lower middle-income countries. Now, at the same time that workers lost $3.7 trillion, the world's biggest billionaires, about 2,000 of them, enjoyed a $3.9 trillion boost to their wealth in 2020. They increased their fortunes by 54%, from about $8 trillion to $12 trillion. The richest five in the U.S., uh, that is Bezos, Bill Gates, Zuckerberg, Buffett, Musk, saw an 85% increase in their combined wealth, which is now about $661 billion. So in the absence of interventions or collective action, the impact of inequality is definitely worse than that in the great financial crisis. So that's a kind of a big picture of where we are a year down. How would you assess the programmes of emergency support and stimulus that were put into effect by the world's leading capitalist states? The advanced capitalist countries of the West, um, especially the US, they initially floundered and fumbled in responding to the public health crisis as it unfolded. But in terms of economic response, intervention was on two fronts. One is to support finance and stem the collapse of the financial markets, which was triggered by the pandemic. And second, an economic stimulus and extension of social safety nets to deal with the toll the pandemic took on uh, lives and livelihoods. Now, um, looking at Europe, the, at the uh, European Commercial Bank had launched the Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program to shore up financial markets. And it increased the scope from 750 billion Europe up to 1.85 trillion by the end of December. In June 2020, Christine Lagarde, the president of the European Central Bank, announced a trillion dollar program to prop up the Eurozone economy. The Euro area economy is experiencing an unprecedented contraction. There has been an abrupt drop in economic activity as a result of the coronavirus pandemic and the measures taken to contain it. While survey data and real-time indicators for economic activity have shown some signs of a bottoming out alongside the gradual easing of the containment measures, the improvement has so far been tepid compared with the speed at which the indicators plummeted Also in June, Germany, the biggest Eurozone state, unveiled a huge economic stimulus, as DW News reported. After two days of intense talks, they emerged with 50 billion euros more than anyone expected. And a dramatic surprise, aimed to get Germans reaching for their wallets. VAT will be cut by 3% until the end of the year. 
There will be a great number of further measures aimed at reviving the economy, and we will agree on a bridging programme using exiting means for middle and small businesses. Among the measures, families will receive €300 per child. The government will help local municipalities cover billions in tax shortfalls. There will be bonuses for companies that keep training programmes despite the pandemic and purchase incentives for electric cars. Missing amid the measures, long hoped for purchase premiums for cars with petrol and diesel engines. Here, even the mighty auto industry could not prevail. The Fed also launched extraordinary interventions which were kind of surpassed both in scope and scale what it did during the financial crisis. And it was ready to pump up to $4 trillion into the financial system through its range of programs. The US has been more effective and proactive in bailing out finance, and its total stimulus spending has been much greater than that, nearly up to 20% of the GDP, counting everything, has surpassed that of both UK, and which is around 15% or less, and Europe, which is in the range of 10%. But a key difference, I mean, if you think of Europe and the, and the U.S. and their stimulus packages, is that the U.S. has focused on direct stimulus checks and an expansion of unemployment insurance. And when it's tried to protect jobs, it has done it by tying support to businesses to a commitment to business commitment to protecting jobs. And that is the PPP program. In contrast, EU and U.K. focused on job retention schemes to keep people in work and directly supported between 70 to 90 percent of wages. So this is a diametrically opposite approach and there's greater support to preserving jobs and employment in Europe and and maintaining the social systems of work compared to the U.S. And this remains true even in the latest stimulus package where the focus is not on shoring up wages or pushing up wages, but on providing some relief through through unemployment or stimulus check, unemployment insurance or stimulus check. So this is, a, I, I think, if you're looking at the advanced world, and I'm focusing on Europe, UK and the US, I mean, the key differences and the key things which unfolded. What do you think the pandemic has told us about the underlying frailties of the world economic system? And which countries have been in particular worst affected in strictly economic terms? Okay, as I said before, the pandemic has been like a prism, which makes the fault lines of the global capitalist system kind of really visible. Now, I talked about one aspect, which is inequalities, particularly between capital and labor, but it's also brought these global asymmetries into really sharp relief. China, US, and Europe were the original hotspots, right? Yet the global economic recovery is expected to occur on the basis of economic recoveries in US and China, and to a lesser degree, Europe. And this is both because of the greater space for fiscal stimulus in these countries and the disproportionate access to vaccines, in particular for the US. Latin America and the Caribbean experienced the worst economic contraction in the region's history dropping by about 6.7% in 2020. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africa experienced the first economic recession in 25 years. Its economy fell by about 2% in 2020. 
But talking about developing countries more generally, between the escalating fiscal demands of dealing with the toll of the pandemic and the balance of payment shortfalls, which was set off by the collapse of global trade and the sudden stop of capital inflows, developing countries have been on the brink of a perfect storm. I mean, the pandemic ignited severe debt crisis. More than 100 countries sought emergency support from the IMF. And to compound this, the constraints, I mean, now that the vaccines are being rolled out, the constraints posed by the power of pharma companies, uh, monopolies and the limits on production imposed by the TRIPS agreement, which based on protecting patents and intellectual property rights, has skewed access to the vaccines. And that means people in high-income countries have got nearly 50%, about 47% of all vaccine doses, while people in low-income countries have got just 0.2%, even though they make up about 9% of the world's population. So the recovery has, and the prospects are really, I mean, inequality is increasing, not just within countries, but there's also, even though initially it was the US and Europe which were the worst hit, a year down the line, we are seeing the worst impacts economically and in terms of the public health crisis in developing countries, and including kind of bigger countries like Brazil and India. You wrote for Catalyst last year about the role of the US Federal Reserve in managing the crisis and in extending dollar swap lines to other countries, building on the precedent of 2008. Could you explain to people, first of all, what that means, what the concept of dollar swap lines actually means? And also say a little bit wider significance of what the Fed has been doing. So uh, the Fed plays a really important role in kind of uh, in the global network of U.S. dominated finance and dollar hegemony. So there's this deep nexus between big banks, the titans of finance and the U.S. Fed. Now, this was seen in the bank bailouts of 2008. And we see it again in the response to the pandemic. Now, this nexus between kind of the titans of finance, which now include big asset managers like BlackRock and not just the big banks. This is also embedded in the privileged role the dollar has in the global financial system or the hegemony of the dollar. It is the leading uh, means by which countries settle international payments. So this role, this privileged role is brought into sharp relief in any moment of crisis, because when there's a crisis, global investors will rush to the safest asset. And that, in the current context, is the dollar. So even when the pandemic kind of uh, was triggered uh, in March, you had and investors across the globe began scurrying for dollars. Again, the safe haven. So there was this sharp spike in the demand for dollars. There's a sharp spike in investor risk perceptions, and that always translates into higher demand for dollars. So the Fed had to step in to the breach and extend a safety net in order to protect the mechanisms of dollar funding, not only within the US, but globally. And the Fed did a lot of stuff. I mean, it basically extended the special institutional arrangements which it had put in place uh, during the global financial crisis of 2008, when again, there was a sharp, even though the financial crisis began in the US, it led perversely to a sharp 
rise in global demand for dollars. And the special arrangement with the U.S. Fed started at that time was the swap line. These swap lines allow select foreign central banks to borrow dollars against their own uh, domestic currency. So it's like a swap, but there is a charge. The extension of swap lines by the Fed after the crash of 2008 happened with very little public knowledge or scrutiny. This exchange from 2010 between the Fed chair Ben Bernanke and Florida Congressman Alan Grayson gives a clear sense of that gap in oversight or understanding. Chairman Bernanke, I'm looking at the report that you handed out this morning, uh, and I was wondering if you could take your copy and turn to page 26. Uh, There's a table on page 26 which uh, consists of your balance sheet, and one of the entries on the balance sheet is under assets, central bank liquidity swaps, which shows an increase uh, from the end of 2007 from $24 billion to $553 billion in change at the end of 2008. What's that? Those are swaps that were done with foreign central banks. Many, um, many foreign banks are, are short dollars. And so they come into our markets looking for dollars and drive up interest rates and create volatility in our markets. What we have done is, with a number of major central banks, like the European Central Bank, for example, we swap our currency dollars for their currency, euros. They take the dollars, lend it out to the banks in their, in their jurisdiction. That helps bring down interest rates in the global market for dollars. And meanwhile, we're not lending to those banks. We're lending to the central bank. The central bank is responsible for repaying us. So who got the money? To financial institutions in, in Europe and other countries. Which ones? I don't know. Half a trillion dollars and you don't know who got the money? Uh, the loan went to the, the loans go to the central banks and they, they then put them out to their, um, to their institutions to try to bring down short-term interest rates in dollar markets around the world. Well, let's start with which central banks got the money. There are 14 of them which are listed um, in our, I'm sure they're listed in here somewhere. All right, so who actually made that decision to hand out a trillion dollars that way, half a trillion dollars? Who made that decision? The Federal Open Market Committee. Okay, and was it done at one time or in a series of meetings? A series of meetings. And under what legal authority? We have a longstanding legal authority to do swaps with other central banks. It's not an emergency authority of any kind. All right, we, we actually looked at one of the arrangements, and one of the arrangements is $9 billion for New Zealand. That works out to $3,000 for every single person who lives in New Zealand. Seriously, wouldn't it be better to a- extend that kind of credit to Americans rather than New Zealanders? It's, it's not uh, costing Americans anything. We're getting interest back, and it comes back. It's not at the cost of any American credit. We are extending credit to Americans. Well, couldn't it, it, wouldn't it necessarily affect the credit markets if you extend half a trillion dollars in in credit to anybody? We are lending to all U.S. financial institutions in exactly the same way. Well, look at the next page. The very next page has the U.S. dollar nominal exchange rate, which shows a 20 percent increase in the U.S. dollar nominal exchange rate at exactly the same time. Do you think that's a coincidence? Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, the Constitution says no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. This money think, is not drawn from the Treasury. Let, well, let's talk about that. Do you think it's consistent with the spirit of that provision in the Constitution for a group like the FMOC 
to hand out a half a trillion dollars to foreigners without any action by this Congress? Congress approved it in the Federal Reserve Act. When was that? Quite a long time ago. I don't know the exact date. Uh, hundred years 19, ago? The original act is 1914, I believe. I, I don't know whether this provision was in 1914 or not, but the Federal Reserve Act was in 1913. All right. And at that time, the entire gross national product of this country was well under half a trillion dollars, wasn't it? I don't know. Is it safe to say that nobody in 1913 contemplated that your small little group of people would decide to hand out half a trillion dollars to foreigners? This, this, uh, this particular authority has been used um, numerous times over the years. Well, actually, according to the chart on page 28, uh, the, virtually the entire amount that's reflected in your current balance sheet went out starting in the last quarter of 2007. And before that, going back to the beginning um, of this chart, the amount of lending was zero to foreigners. Is that it was zero before data? the crisis, yeah. This was, this was part of the process working with other central banks to, um, again, to try to get uh, dollar money markets working normally in the global economy. All right. My time is very limited. The gentleman's, uh, time, limited is, gentleman's time is expired. <laughs> the gentleman Thank from you, New York. Mr. Chairman. Now, this began as a temporary arrangement, but now these swap lines, at least with, with the five key central banks, Bank of Canada, Bank of England, Bank of Japan, European Central Bank, and the Swiss National Bank have been given a permanent status in 2013. Between the financial crisis and the pandemic, the dollar hegemony kind of strengthened. The dollar continued to be important and grew in importance in international uh, monetary systems and international payment mechanisms. So when the pandemic spreads and there's a panic in the financial uh, investors, there's a spike in demand for dollars, and this came up in March itself, in the middle of March. And this global upsurge in the demand for dollars threatened to jam the global financial markets. So in response, the Fed first lowered the rates and interest rates. It increased the uh, frequency at which the foreign central banks could swap their currencies for dollars through these swap lines. It widened the swap lines to include nine other central banks, which had been given temporary access in 2009. Now, this kind of um, ramping up of the swap lines could be seen as a kind of closing ranks around the dollar. It's getting central banks, key central banks, to act in consort to protect dollar funding mechanisms. Okay. So this was kind of a reprise of what it did in 2008. But in 2020, the U.S. Fed went even further. And in order to reinforce the network of swap lines, which have been playing a really key role in managing dollar flows in the global financial system, the dollar added and the Fed added a new arrangement, what's called the repo facilities. For the first time, it allowed central banks outside the network of swap lines to borrow dollars. The difference is that while the swap lines allowed you to borrow dollars against domestic currency, the repo facilities allowed you to borrow dollars against holdings of U.S. Treasury bills. And now this new facility, this repo facility, is kind of a response to the changed geography of finance after the global financial crisis. 
European banks have ceded their dominant role in global dollar operations to non-European banks, and Chinese banks in particular have expanded their role in dollar lending, overseas dollar lending, since 2010. And what is interesting about these repo facilities is that it excludes the People Bank, uh, uh, the swap lines, is that People's Bank of China, with its huge stockpile of U.S. treasuries, was outside, was not included. So while China could not directly access the swap lines, it had a huge stockpile of treasury bills. And a way to mobilize that would be through the repo facilities. The March tumult in the financial markets had seen unusually high sell-off of U.S. treasuries by investors and asset managers, of course, but equally by central banks, right? And there was a kind of more than $100 billion of official holdings of U.S. treasuries was sold right in March. Now, since borrowing against U.S. treasuries, which is the repo transaction, you get dollars in exchange for your holdings of U.S. treasuries. And since these kind of repo transactions are pivotal market channel for acquiring dollars, this is the way a lot of banks, financial institutions get dollars in the market. Stemming the free fall in the market for U.S. treasuries is imperative if these mechanisms of dollar funding are to be kept moving. So the repo arrangements provided a way for foreign central banks to acquire dollars without selling, further selling U.S. treasuries. And these central bank holdings of treasuries were kind of a credit line extended to the U.S. They would lend to the U.S. by holding U.S. treasuries. Now with the repo facility, they could borrow U.S. dollars, the monetary liability of the U.S. state, by putting up the U.S. debt in the form of a treasury as collateral. So you're borrowing U.S. dollars by putting up U.S. debt as collateral. And this new facility would therefore kind of amplify the credit line that central banks of surplus countries with dollar reserves extend to the U.S. It adds another tier to the mechanisms that reinforce the hierarchy of the dollar's dollars global role. But these swap lines and these repo facilities don't provide access to dollar funds to central banks of debtor countries and developing countries because they don't have huge holdings of U.S. treasuries. And they have also been rendered more vulnerable with the exodus of capital in response to the crisis. So for these countries, there has been a tightening of screws. They've had to go to the IMF and borrow. And in, the, in that sense, the asymmetry, which was already there before the crisis of debtor countries who, who face conditionalities every time they need to borrow in order to meet balance of payment crisis, those screws continue to be tightened. So the Fed's interventions have been significant because they restored the fortunes of finance, but they've also reinforced the mechanisms of dollar funding and the global dominance of dollar. Following on from that point, in a wider sense, you've referred more than once to the asymmetries in the world economy. What implications do you think the pandemic has in the long run for the balance of economic power between China and the US? So after China entered the global markets with the signing of the WTO agreement in 2000, I mean, since then, it's grown to dominate the critical hubs of trade and production networks. 
it's, I mean, basically exploiting cost advantages, not simply on the basis of uh, undervalued exchange rates, but more importantly, on the basis of low wage labor, a kind of a race to the bottom. However, despite this dominance in trade and production, the U.S., despite being the leading trade deficit country, which borrowed from China to finance its deficit, China is a leading creditor of the U.S., the U.S. continued to dominate and strengthen the dominance over global financial networks, thanks to the unparalleled global sway of its big banks, U.S. big banks, and the hegemony of the dollar. So despite being a leading exporter, the capital controls that insulated China from global financial markets and limited convertibility of the renminbi meant that the renminbi was less attractive in the global markets and China, despite being the leading creditor of the U.S., was constrained in the global markets to lend in dollars, not in renminbi. And it was also constrained to stockpile U.S. Treasury bills, in effect helping the U.S. finance its deficit and extending a kind of a unlimited credit line to the U.S. So this ability to borrow from China was also an important part of the mechanisms that helped perpetuate the dominance of U.S.-led finance and dollar hegemony. So it's all tied together. China became invested in stability of the dollar since a collapse would wipe out its huge dollar asset base. But since the global financial crisis, China has been kind of carving out a more independent space in the global economy under U.S. hegemony. But the approach it's been taken has been kind of, especially since 2010, very pragmatic. It's what, what it calls crossing the river by feeling the pebbles. So on one hand, it's been moving to, in a calibrated manner, internationalize the renminbi, which means basically opening up its financial markets and creating greater space for financial markets to develop within China. It has also been pushing forward on technological frontiers, IT, solar energy, etc., the recent tensions around the Huawei and 5G and the acceleration of China's plans to launch a digital currency, even as it opened its doors to asset management sector, the doors of its asset management sector to foreign asset management groups like BlackRock. In April, as the pandemic was unfolding, it reflects these contradictory impulses which have been triggered by the escalation of geopolitical tensions with the U.S., there was an element of drama in the tensions and the accusations of currency manipulation. There was this kind of awkward dance, the waltz between the dragon and the eagle. But both were invested in keeping that dance going. But this already awkward waltz between the dragon and the eagle is kind of losing step because the dragon became loath to be led and the eagle was finding it harder to find new ways to continue to lead. So the financial crisis already kind of expose some of the tensions which have been growing since then. And I think this has only increased after the pandemic. And the rise of protectionist rhetoric in the recent years are the fractures and the mechanisms of global governance through which U.S. exercises its imperial power, kind of maybe rewriting the rules of Pax Americana in the aftermath of the pandemic. But I think it's early to map the path, I mean, how it's going to play out I mean, the Fed has been successful in its efforts to preserve dollar hegemony and restore the fortunes of U.S. finance. 
for the time being. And after its retreat to an America first doctrine under Trump, the U.S. state is now with under Biden stepping forward to play a kind of imperial role in steering or forging a consensus among the, the core of advanced capitalist countries to circumscribe China's claims. So the tensions are definitely accelerating, but I, but how it's going to play out is an open question. Since becoming president, Joe Biden has declared his commitment to U.S. economic competition with China. Last night, I was uh, I was on the phone for two straight hours with Xi Jinping. If we don't get moving, they're going to eat our lunch. Biden has spoken of the need for large-scale investment in infrastructure and research by the American state in overtly nationalist terms. The future lies in who can, in fact, own the future as it relates to technology, quantum computing, a whole range of things, including in the medical fields. We're going to invest in medical research, cancer, Alzheimer's, diabetes, the things, industries of the future, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, biotech, and we're going to make real investments. China is out investing us by a long shot because their plan is to own that future. They have an overall goal to become the leading country in the world, the wealthiest country in the world, and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch, because the United States is going to continue to grow and expand. How would you compare the handling of this crisis by the European Union with the previous experience of the Eurozone crisis back in 2008 and after? Would you say that there's been a meaningful break with austerity this time around, or with the policies that were often referred to as the Berlin Consensus? In 2009, the fiscal stimulus in the EU, in the Eurozone, kind of fell behind that in the US, and its recovery also lagged behind that of the US. And whatever momentum was there when the crisis began was stalled when the Eurozone debt crisis, when it morphed into the Eurozone debt crisis, and there was a resurgence of austerity policies. The stimulus in response to the pandemic has been greater at around 7% of GDP compared to like less than 2% in the financial crisis and amounting to roughly 2.3 trillion euros. So in that sense, there has been some break, but the more significant break with the response to the Eurozone crisis has been the launch of this 800 billion euro next generation EU fund. And what this marks is recovery based on large-scale spending on priorities such as energy transition, just energy transition and digitalization. But this large-scale spending is going to be financed by common European debt. And now this is a significant step toward a significant and new step towards a collective guarantee of EU debt. Now, this has been kind of anathema so far for the EU, and uh, it's been called a Hamiltonian moment for EU central banking. And the centerpiece of this is the Recovery and Resilience Facility, which provides loans and grants to fund national plans. Okay, So this is, I think, an important milestone in European integration because the absence of a euro-denominated debt instrument, which is collectively guaranteed by the eurozone states, was an important obstacle for the euro. And it was also a critical hurdle in the response of the ECB to the Eurozone crisis. Uh, there's also been greater flexibility in the ECB, the European Central Bank approach to bond purchases, 
most significant being waivers, a waiver which allows the purchase of a of Greek sovereign debt bonds, which are below investment grade. Now, so all this, of course, does not mean a death knell to austerity politics, but I do think that in contrast to the financial crisis, including the Eurozone crisis, which unleashed both fascist and progressive movements in Europe, there is now a greater space for pushing a social democratic project and pushing back against austerity. Coming out of the pandemic, even in the best case scenario, with vaccines proving to be effective and also widely available, not just in Europe and North America, how do you think the world economy will have been transformed by this experience? Hum, um, the global financial crisis had turned the spotlight on the dominance of finance and its implications for rising inequality and the falling share of workers' income on the accumulation paradigm, which allowed a small globally connected corporate elite to corner bulk of the gains of both income and productivity, even as the increasingly precarious workers in informal fragmented labor markets and fissured workplaces around the world were increasingly marginalized. But yet, in the aftermath of the crisis, the dominance of finance became more entrenched, the trends of increasing inequality a falling share of wages continued to be exacerbated. So there is, in a sense, the unfinished business of the global financial crisis. Inequality was depressing economic growth, leading to the bane of what is called secular stagnation. The financial system continued to accumulate risks while fueling further inequalities. But after the pandemic, if we come out of this kind of in one piece with the vaccinations, etc., what can't be forgotten is how the pandemic basically brought, I mean, made glaringly obvious the failure of public policy and the market system to bring about the scope and scale of coordination and mobilization which was needed to face the challenge of the pandemic and its economic fallout. So the stranglehold of there is no alternative doctrine, there's scope for that to be kind of thrown off. Um, what is hopeful, at least to me, is there's signs of some momentum picking up on issues like workers' rights, wages and working conditions, including that of the gig economy workers here in the U.S. and informal migrant workers in developing countries, including India, right? whose uh, kind of conditions was one of the most visible aspects of the COVID experience in India, the migrant crisis, migrant labor crisis. The balance is also shifting to put the monopoly of big tech companies, Amazon, Facebook, etc., under the spotlight. There's also more focus on corporate evasion of wealth taxes, talk of you know coordination to, to have a global minimum wealth tax, however meager that may seem. There's also focus on corporate responsibility for climate change. So these are all, I think, hopeful signs and these signs signal an opening, an opening because the world after the pandemic has to be different from the world before, but it's going to take social movements and collective action to have a truly uh, progressive paradigms shift. So even if the current pandemic, I mean, the pandemic will lead to a profound so transformation of social order. 
even if we don't know what lies ahead. What we know is that the pandemic struck a system that was failing, and that has to change. Many thanks to Rama Vasudevan for giving us that overview of the world economy after COVID-19. You can find more of what Rama has to say about the condition of global capitalism in our articles for Jacobin and Catalyst.